now they're ready to enter the land. And remember, this is the map of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. Basically, in the book of Exodus, they're up here in the land of Goshen, living there as, in the beginning, just as residents of Egypt under Joseph and his family. And then about 100, 150 years later, we have no idea how much time, the new pharaoh came into power, began to fear the growing numbers of the Israelites, and he enslaved them. And so they spent the next couple hundred years or so in slavery in Goshen. God then brings the ten plagues, protecting Goshen and the Israelites from the judgment of the plagues. And then Moses leads them in the Exodus. And they cross about right here, which is called the Bitter Lakes. And they crossed the water there, not because they had to cross water to get out of Egypt. When I was growing up as a kid, I always thought, like, you had to cross water, and that's why they went through. But God brought them through the water in order to have a means of destroying the Egyptians, as well as a, to paint a metaphorical picture of their baptism, as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that they're going through the Red Sea was their baptism, their cleansing, entering into a new life, and to recreate the imagery of the chaotic waters from Genesis 1 and the flood that God's using the chaos to judge and then subduing it again by bringing it back together. So they cross here. They come straight to Sinai Peninsula and the Mount Sinai. We don't really know where Mount Sinai is. The two theories are down here or in Midian. They spend about 11 months there. The Shekinah glory of God, that big giant pillar of fire, leads them there, brings them to Mount Sinai. God comes down the mountain. He appears to them, which has never happened in the history of mankind, and he gives them the law. And the law is what taught them what it means to be righteous like God. But he also gives them instructions for the altar, because he knows that they won't ever be able to do that, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. So he immediately tells them how to sacrifice. So in that 11 months, he then gives them the instructions to build the tabernacle, which is his dwelling with them. In the middle of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, and so it's the ark that reminds them of their covenant with God and is also symbolic of God's presence with them. And then he also gives them a sacrificial system to teach them how to atone for their sins and come to God. It's 11 months. Mostly it's them building the tabernacle. After 11 months, they make their way up to the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, or the southern part of Israel, the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, to Kadesh Barnea. And there they send spies in, in a lack of faith, and they realize, well, they think they can't take the land. And ten of the spies say, we can't take it, but the two that say they can is Caleb and Joshua. They ultimately, in the end, decide that they can't. God judges them. And and what's interesting is they are afraid that when they get there, the Anakites, these really tall men and warriors, will kill all their children. So in a poetic justice, God says, fine, you're going back in the wilderness and you'll wander until you die and your children that you so feared would be killed are going to take the land. So they wander in the wilderness as all their bodies hit the ground and they die over 40 years. And eventually they make it back up to Shittim, which we talked about that. And then they have two, one last rebellion with the Moabite women. So that brings us to the end of Numbers going to Deuteronomy. At the end of Numbers, they move up around Edom because Edom won't let them through and they're not allowed to attack them because they're related. They go around Moab because Moab won't let them through and they're not allowed to attack them because they're related. And they make their way to the Amorites. And that brings us here. 
The Amorites are Sihon and Og. And they defeat Sihon and Og in the end of Numbers. And that's pretty much how Numbers ends. In the book of Deuteronomy, they're, li- they're sitting in these plains across the Jordan River. And Jericho's right here. And Moses gives them three speeches in Deuteronomy, basically telling them to remember God's faithfulness to them and how he blessed them, and to remember how God judged them when they didn't respond in faith. So that's where we are now. Moses passes the torch of leadership or the mantle of leadership to Joshua. Deuteronomy ends and Joshua begins. And when Joshua begins, they send the two spies in to spy out Jericho. They now occupy everything from the Amman River right above Moab all the way up to the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This eastern side of the Jordan River is what's called the Transjordan region. And two and a half tribes, Gad and Reuben and half of Manasseh, basically decide they want to settle here. So they're camped out right here, and they can see Jericho. This whole region on the eastern side of the Jordan River is a giant plateau. So the Jordan River is a giant rift valley, and if you're standing the Jordan River facing north on the right side, the east side, it just juts straight up into the air, not literally straight up, but really intensely, into this plateau, and then it plateaus off into the desert. And then if you look on the left side, the western side of the Jordan River, it shoots up into this hilly territory. All the way from the south, all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, right between what's Philistia and the Jordan River is this hill country. And so it's, it's not, even though they call a lot of it mountains, it's not really mountains, it's just giant hills. And if you've ever had like a big, giant, fluffy comforter blanket, you kind of throw it up in the air and let it settle down, and it's just folds upon folds upon folds. That's kind of what that terrain looks like. Just hills upon hills upon hills. And the valleys, which are called wadis, kind of like snake through them and that kind of stuff. Basically, what you have is that hill country. And then it kind of slopes down into the region of the coastal plains of the Mediterranean Sea, which is the greenest, flattest, most fertile land in all of Israel. Unfortunately, they will never really occupy that land until David comes along. And even then, David doesn't really completely take it. That's occupied by Philistia. That's kind of the geography. So as they're standing on the plateau, the Transjordan Mountains, they can look across the Jordan Rift Valley and see Jericho on the other hill. And Jericho can look across the valley and see them. And so they're, they, they're very aware of each other's presence. Now eventually when Israel comes in, they're only going to settle the hill country. Most of their battles and conquests are going to be in the hill country up and down. And the thing that you must understand is we, we don't really think about this much, but, and I don't mean this in any offensive way to anybody, but I just mean this in an economic, geopolitical kind of a way. The hill country is more of like a West Virginia hill country kind of territory, a low income, um, very impoverished and even somewhat um, socially kind of backwards in a technological advancement kind of a sense and having power. The coastal plains where Philistia is is like the New Yorks and the San Francisco's and the, 
and the LAs and that kind of stuff. That's where all the money and the power and the wealth and the prestige is and the modern technology is. And you're going to really see that in the book of Samuel when Israel. So you have to realize that that's who Israel is. Israel is more of what we would think of kind of a West Virginia mountaintop Appalachian kind of a territory where the Philistia, who are the pagans, are actually more of like the New York cities and that kind of stuff. So right now they're facing off in the hill country and most of their initial conquests are going to be in the hill country. They're incredibly fortified because it's really hard to take a city on a hill. It's more difficult to take these cities than when the coastal plains but the money is in the coastal plains. So a lot of the military power and the controlling the trade is in the mountains, but a lot of the money and the wealth and the prestige is in the coastal plains. And so that's kind of what we have now. This begins with Joshua commanding to go in, but remember chapters three through five is them preparing to enter the land. And then when we get to 6 through 12, that's going to be the actual conquest. So we're still preparing to enter the land, and conquest isn't going to begin until chapter 6. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Bright and early the next morning, Joshua and the Israelites left Shittim and came to the Jordan. They camped there before crossing the river, and after three days the leaders went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God being carried by the Levitical priests, you must leave here and walk behind it. But stay about 3,000 feet behind it. Keep your distance so you can see which way you should go, for you have not traveled this way before. So God commands them that the Ark of the Covenant carried by the Levitical priests is going to lead them. Now what's interesting is that all through the wilderness time, in the book of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it is the Shekinah glory, that giant pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that's been leading them. The fire is the presence of God. It is the, the image of God. And when we get to Ezekiel and Daniel, he is described. I love Ezekiel's description of it. Ezekiel says he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He didn't actually see God, he saw the glory. But he didn't actually see the glory of God, he saw the appearance of the glory. But he didn't actually see the appearance, he saw the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. Because God is so holy and so amazing that you can't even see his appearance, you can only see the likeness of the appearance of the glory. So that's what the Shekinah glory of God is. It's just the closest we're going to be able to physically get to a holy God in this material realm as sinners. That's what led them. Fire, light, all that represents the presence of God, the glory of God. And that leads them. But it also kind of represents this scary, it's also described as a tornado of fire and lightning, a whirlwind. And usually when the whirlwind shows up in God, it's not good in the Bible. And so it can also represent the judgment or the authority or the absolute sovereignty of God over our people. And what you see now is now that we've left Deuteronomy, we transition out of the Shekinah glory of God leading them, and now it's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is where they place their covenant that both God and them signed in blood, so to speak, through an animal sacrifice in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God because it is gold-plated and gold is reflective of light and that represents light and glory and presence but specifically it's called the ark of the covenant and covenant communicates more of a relationship and a bonding 
and a intimate mutual relationship. And so what's interesting is from this point on through Joshua and Judges, it's going to be the Ark of the Covenant that leads them. And so what God is showing is now they're coming to the land, now that they have a covenant, now that they have a tabernacle, now that they have a sacrificial system, they can have a more intimate relationship with God, and God is going to lead them in a more intimate way. And God commanded that only the Kohites, a tribe, with, or sorry, a clan within the tribe of Levites, were allowed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a metal or a wooden box, gold-plated, and they were carried with two poles, and it had to be covered at all times. Nobody that was not the high priest was allowed to actually see it. And it was covered in blue cloths and that kind of stuff, which represents royalty and the spiritual realm. And they were to carry it, and only the Kohites. And so they would carry two men in the front and two men in the back carrying it. And because it was holy and it was the presence of God, they were to keep their distance. And so that's how they were to lead. So now God's covenant, honoring his covenant promises, is what's going to lead them faithfully into the promised land. And I think that's a very significant transition that we see here. And they are faithful to the instructions of God of how to carry this ark. So verse 5, Joshua told the people, Ritually consecrate yourself, for tomorrow Yahweh will perform miraculous deeds among you. Joshua told the priests, Pick up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they picked up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now every single time God tells them to do something, in a ritual kind of way, they're to cleanse themselves. Now here's what's interesting. Every single time they were to move together as a warrior camp, Six tribes were to be in the front. The Levites with all the holy articles, the Ark of the Covenant, were to be in the middle. And six tribes were to follow behind. And that's how they were to go everywhere. Whenever they went into battle, the Levites were always to stay behind. And the other 12 tribes would go into battle. But now what we see is the Levitical tribe with the Ark of the Covenant is leading them. And the other tribes are following behind. This is different. They have never, ever done this before. Which means that this is less about a military conquest and more about God going to do something amazing. And it also presents the idea that it's more of a holy war. It's a cleansing. Now, technically, all this is a holy war. But this specifically, God is going to do something very unique. So already as the reader, you know, if you've never read this book before... That's the, the, the unfortunate thing about growing up in Christianity your whole life. You've, you've lost that newness of reading a story for the first time ever and being surprised. If you never read this before, you automatically know they're not really going to do anything militarily. If they were, the Levites wouldn't be leading, which means you expect God to do something. And that's, that's what the reader wants you to get as you're going through this. And so because they're going into a ritual thing, they're to cleanse themselves. And washings and cleansings are a big part of being connected and being holy in the presence of God. So verse 7, Yahweh told Joshua, This very day I will begin to honor you before all of Israel, so you will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Instruct the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the bank of the Jordan, wade into the water. The water is at its deepest and widest right at Jericho, right before it flows in the Dead Sea. It starts in these mountains up here north of the Sea of Galilee. It trickles down to the Sea of Galilee, and then it's this muddy river going down through Israel, 
and begins to get wider and deeper, wider. And then this is also the flood season, so to speak, the high water season. It's, it's rushing. And they've got this heavy gold-plated box. If you ever lift one gold bar, let an entire box gold-plated that requires four men to carry it, they're going to step into a raging river at its highest point and widest and trust that it's just going to be okay. Okay, that would be, it's, it, that's not safe when you're not carrying something, let alone something that you're not allowed to drop. You're not allowed to do anything to it. So Joshua told the Israelites, come here and listen to the word of Yahweh your God. Joshua continued, this is how you will know the living God is among you, that he will truly drive out before the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and the Jebusites. Look, the Ark of the Covenant of the ruler of the whole world is ready to enter the Jordan ahead of you. God, in the form of the Ark of the Covenant, metaphorically, is going to step into the river ahead of you. Select for yourself 12 men from all the tribes of Israel, one per tribe. And when the feet of the priests carrying the ark of Yahweh, the ruler of the whole world, touches the water of the Jordan, the water coming downstream toward you will stop flowing and pile up. So when the people left the tents to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. And when the ones carrying the ark reached the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying out the ark touched the surface of the water, the Jordan is at flood stage at all the, during the harvest time. The water coming downstream toward them stopped flowing. It piled up far upstream at Adam, the city of Zerathum, and there was no water at all flowing to the Sea of Arabia, or Arab, um, Arabah, the Salt Sea, or what we know as the Dead Sea. And the people crossed the river opposite Jericho. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firmly on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, and all of Israel crossed over on dry ground until they entered the nation was on the other side, until the entire nation was on the other side. So these Levitical priests carrying this heavy box put their foot out into a raging water at flood stage, and it's not until their foot touches the surface of the water that it stops. And notice, there's no grumbling, complaining. Why has God brought us here just to kill us, like in the wilderness of the book of Numbers? There's no hesitation. They just simply obey. That's faith. That's absolute faith. And they go into the middle of the river, and they have to stand there while the entire nation crosses through. The water piles up on one side, and is dry completely on the other side. Now, why is God doing this? There's many other ways. God could have miraculously build a bridge for them. He could have levitated them across. I mean, he is God. He could have teleported them across. There's all these other di different things. The reason he's doing this is it's to remind them of the, the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing. He's doing the exact same thing that he did at the Red Sea crossing. Now, you have to remember, most of these people either did not see with their own eyes because they were way too young to remember or not born, or it was a distant childhood memory. What God is doing is he's reminding them. Now, remember, they were supposed to do the Red Sea crossing and then immediately, about a year later, enter the Promised Land. But it was the lack of the faith of their parents that delayed this for 40 years after 40 years, I mean, we forget things that God did like a week ago. 
After 40 years, God is reminding him that the same God that delivered them from Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea is the same God right now that's going to bring them into the promised land. And so it's a recreation of that memory. It's a reminder to them that these aren't just the story of their grandparents, that they're now experiencing this. Now what's amazing is that when they came to the Red Sea 40 years ago, the parents freaked out. And yet all these people have is a story from their parents or a distant memory, and they didn't even hesitate. They didn't even really need it. Yet God did it anyways, as a reminder. But not only that, this is their baptism too. Because we're going to find out their parents didn't really do that great of a job of teaching them and really richly purifying them. And we're going to find out that none of them are really circumcised, which is a huge no-no in God's law. And so they need to be baptized as well into this new covenant faith because what immediately is going to happen on the other side is, is a massive national circumcision to get into the covenant. And so God is doing this to remind them of who he is and to baptize them into a new relationship with them. Every generation, God is going to do something to remind them of who he is and why they should be following him. And so they step out in faith. Any idea of numbers at this point? We know it's exactly the same as the people left in Egypt. So probably a lot of people... We're told that there's like 600,000 people who live, leave Egypt, and we know that those are just the warriors. So if those are the warriors, the assumption is, well, they're all, most of them are married, they have at least one or two kids, and even if they don't, then there's older people and that kind of stuff. So people put at 2 million, 2 million people. The problem with that is, and we, I talked about this in numbers, is that, that that doesn't work. One, literally speaking, you can't get that many people in this plane. Now, I know we can say God can do anything, but this is geography. God doesn't usually do miracles with getting people into small spaces. Okay, so geographically, that doesn't work. Two, there's a whole bunch of other issues of there's just no way. Look, he talks about these people being way more numerous than them and that there's no way that they could take it on their own. We know the numbers of these people. and in a, Two million people, they could have done this easily without God. They could have just clobbered them. And two million people would have easily filled Israel and occupied it. Yet at the same time, the Bible makes it clear that you're not enough to maintain the land. The land will overtake you. Wild animals and trees and that kind of stuff. And there's a whole bunch of things that suggest it's not it. But the word for thousand is the Hebrew word elif. And elif can mean a clan, a thousand, or like a regiment of people. And so the, the thing that we need to realize is they don't have a numerical... Um, numbering system like we have one two three numbers but we also have words like one two and three and so we have both numerical and words for counting in the hebrew they don't have a numerical system all they have is words or they'll use letters of the alphabet <coughs> for numbers and so you need to understand that because words can mean multiple things in different contexts like the word trunk can be the trunk of a tree, the trunk of an elephant, the trunk of a car, the trunk at the end of your bed. And you only know by context, the same thing is with these words, three, seven, forty. So three can mean literally three, or it can mean like a few. But the word seven can mean literally seven, or sometimes it's used to just mean several. The number 40 can mean literally 40, but it also sometimes is used just to mean a lot. 
And so the same thing, thousand can be either elif can be a thousand, or it can be a regiment or a clan. So most scholars believe that it's probably saying that there were 600 <coughs> regiments. And so that puts the numbers much lower, and it makes it a lot more realistic when we're coming to this thing. And yet we're not saying the Bible is inaccurate or misleading because that word can literally mean that. And so what we do know is their numbers started to grow after the Exodus, but because so many of them sinned and rebelled and God had to send so many plagues and judgment, when we get to the end of numbers, he numbers them all and they're exactly at the same number. So the number that left the Exodus is the number that's entering in, around 600 regiments of young men, including then in addition their wives and their children and that kind of stuff. Not a large number. And of course, we have no idea how big of a regiment is because regiments can mean different things at different times and here it appears different, different things. Most people put the number around between like 18 to like 25,000 people total. There are more people alive right now than all people in world history put together. So we're, when we're talking about cities, like even when you're talking about like they conquered a city and we, we imagine them going into like Moscow and wiping out thousands upon thousands of people. We're talking about cities like the pe- when they go and conquer cities, we're talking about like 100, 200 people. When, when, when Herod is exterminating all the baby boys in Bethlehem, Bethlehem was probably like 100 families at the most. And then the amount of children that are actually boys under the age of two is like way less than that. So yes, killing one baby is a horrible, horrific tragedy. But we're also not talking about this wide scale, like thousands of kids dying and modern day scholars are like, there's no way he could get away with that. Well, first of all, he's a king in the ancient world and he can. And two, it's not really as, it's hard for us to think of cities. So think of more like small towns. And I mean like smaller than even like Zanesville and Piqua and that kind of stuff. That's what we're dealing with here in the ancient world because we, they just haven't multiplied like we have to this day. So the numbers are way smaller than what we think of in our world perspective.